Welcome to Architecture Insights, a podcast series produced by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board. My name is Di Snape and I'm here in the Purple Podcast booth with my co-host and our very own registrar, Tim Horton. Hi, Tim. Hi, Di. This is the last in our series of Architecture Insights about the Barra Hadley Travelling Scholarship and we're going to hear today from Ben Peake, um, who received his scholarship last year. He's almost finished his report. Um, and I think that Ben's work in particular, he's reporting he was exploring ideas towards the public interest, sort of brings us to the crux of the matter, doesn't it, in terms of um, the bequest and the benefit mm. to the profession. It does. And if you look at Byra's impact over the last 65 years, actually, there's a series of call them trends. You know, 1951, it's about monumentality in architecture and modernism. We see in the 80s and 90s uh, a rise in the interest of sustainability and environmentally sustainable development. And now uh, in the early 2000s, we see a real interest in architects in social impact and how architects can reframe the way we talk about architecture in a much more public and accessible way. And really take on their responsibility to the public as well at, Mm. at all levels. Today we're going to hear from producer and curator Jan Ryan, who's speaking with Ben Peake from Carter Williamson Architects, who received his Barra Hadley Scholarship in 2014. Hi, Ben. Hi. Uh, What was your scholarship about? Uh, So it was really about questioning the role of the architect um, and how we work towards public benefit, but also the role of the citizen in making the city. And you went to a number of Sydney architects seeking insight and answers to get the answer to this larger question of yours. That's right. So um, who were they and what did they say? So I spoke to a, a number of people and they were um, that was probably the best part of the scholarship, being welcomed into the businesses and practices of industry leaders. Uh, and you know, initially I thought my scholarship was really going to be focused on the citizens' role in making the city, but I think I was influenced largely by the people I spoke to, to focus more about the role of the architect. And given that I was just about to finish university and I had some time um, in the profession, these were questions that were going through my mind as well. Mm. Um, So you really focused on talking to architects. You didn't really speak to any citizens per se. Well, interesting you say that because Sydney architect Philip Thallis and um, running for councillor of the City of Sydney, he reminded me that first we need to be citizens. And we need to acknowledge our role as citizens and never against our role as citizens. But as a profession, um, we have a duty to know more than the average citizen about making our cities, about making our architecture. And therefore, we have a a responsibility to act um, with that knowledge towards the best um, interest of the public. So who were some of the the people you spoke to? Yeah, so Philip Thales was one, um, Adam Haddow, director at SJB. All Sydney architects. All Sydney architects. Ken Ma as well. Yes. But also Very to- senior, he, uh, president Absolutely. of the Australian That's Institute right. of Architects. That's right, yeah. And he, you know, Ken's got a, um, a very long and successful career. So for him, um, I think he, he told me at one point that He believes the public interest is the theme that needs to drive us all if we're going to be responsible and responsive architects. Mm -hmm. And that's something he's worked on for his entire career. Yeah, so who were some of the others, some of the younger ones? Yep, so um, Adam Hatter, as I mentioned, was, yeah, uh, David Tickle at Hassel I spoke to. Um, People all had different experiences, but there was generally a collective um, understanding that we have this obligation to work towards a public interest, but people were doing it in different ways. You're really looking at public service. Yeah, yep. 
it's very old fashioned. Yeah. Well, um, Ken, to quote Ken Mara again, he um, he thinks it was partly influenced by the fact that he received a free education. So society had given him the, the value of this education and therefore he had a reciprocal responsibility to give something back. I mean, we don't have that in our education system now, but I think um, the profession still requires us um, mm. and society requires us to act with that in mind. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out if people don't feel an obligation to give back. Mm. Yeah. But you don't think that's going to be the case well, or you, you don't know? I think, um, I mean, I can only speak about what I think and the people I've spoken to. And for them, it wasn't about, architecture wasn't about making buildings. It was all about people and society and having an, using an understanding of people to make society better. So there's this um, professional optimism that I think is embedded in the character of people that want to be architects. So I think regardless of whether we receive free education or not, that's going to be something that drives people or definitely drives the people I've spoken to mm. so far. Um, I like the landscape architect Sasha Cole's provocation. Yes. <laughs> uh, this is a beauty. We're going ab about uh, architecture and, and what's happening at the moment. We're going through a period of lethargy because we're so wealthy. Yeah. Sasha Coles was great to speak to. Um, he actually tried to encourage me to become a landscape architect. <laughs> <laughs> Never um, let an opportunity go by. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and um, he was fantastic to speak to in the sense that landscape is often um, working on the public domain. So often more public than architecture. It's the stuff around buildings which people have more access to. So in regards to community participation and involvement, um, he was dealing with that on a professional basis. Mm. And, I mean, my question to him and his response sort of came out around a question I said, why do you think citizens aren't being involved in making the city? And there was this low level of participation. Um, and then he responded that he thinks that we've, we've got it pretty comfortable here in Australia and... Um, Wealth, too comfortable. Too comfortable, perhaps, yeah. And wealth is definitely part of that. And so this interview took place earlier in the year. Since then, we've seen things like the trees being removed for Anzac Parade and people spending all night protesting against these. But that's, um, that's an example of the sort of questions I've got. Why is it taking, to the very end, to these trees actually, like that violent act of the trees being removed mm. for the community to be represented in what's going on. You know, where was the consultation and where was the involvement and where was the sharing of the information a year, two years before when these decisions were being made at a government level? Mm. And there's that disconnection there, which I'm trying to figure out. You know, what's the architect's job? What's the citizen's job? What's the politician's job? Yes, or bring them together. And it's Anzac yeah. Parade in Sydney, of course. It's a, you know, major road and on the edge of Centennial Park That's and right. wanting to put some light rail through. So, um, you know, a lot of issues there. Where do we put the light rail yeah. if See, you don't take the trees down? Well, for me, that, that equation, I think you can convince anybody that removing a few trees to install light rail is probably a net gain, like a good thing for the city. But it's the way that things happen and the lack of participation and the, the feeling of being involved in the process, I think, is what um, people struggle with. Mm. Um, so, yeah, these interviews predate that happening, but... One of the people I also spoke to was Rob Stokes, who's the Minister for Planning. And he understands that the future, and this is to quote him, the future is made by those people who turn up. Yes, that's you know? really true. So how do, we, how do we get people to turn up earlier and be involved and, you know, with the ambition to make the outcome better? Do you have any ideas on how we can all turn up or how you can make us want to turn up? Yeah, this is, this is the hard part. Um, 
I, you know, informally spoke to friends and family about this as well, and a lot of them just think somebody else is taking care of it for them. So there's a general um, potential for a general feeling that the government is doing the best they can, or their their voices aren't valid. So there's, I guess, there's two ways I'm thinking about this: the top down, so the government enforcing what needs to happen, or the bottom up, you know, the community um, led initiatives. Mm. Um, but I think there's an opportunity to work somewhere in the middle. Yes. I like uh, Philip Thalys's quote about collective self-interest. Mm. Something in there that's really interesting. Yeah. It's really provocative again in a way that you know, Sasha's quote is. Yeah, so I think um, that all came about because I was commenting on the lack of participation. But some people are very engaged with planning issues that are happening around their area, their local area. So I'm sure a lot of people have examples where they've put a DA into council, development application, and there's been a number of objections from their neighbour, a bunch, a whole heap of different grounds. And Philip Thales's comment was that those people being engaged in that process isn't towards making the city better for everybody. It's not a public interest. It's just a bunch of people with the same personal interests. Mm. So that's where it comes out that it's a you know, collective self-interest. Mm. I think it's a lovely term and, and it really you know, deeply makes you think. Because when uh, I think your research showed that when people, uh, when there's a, a larger DA or a public mm. uh, proposal put forward outside of the, you know, the DA t- of your neighbour, um, that people actually don't comment that much. And there's, I think there's a few things, you know, even myself, I've been guilty of that, in that a lot of the time when you're asked for comment, there's 60 pages, black and white text of information to try and get your head around of something that is a long way away. Um, and it's, it's very hard to visualise, very hard to get your head around. Mm. Um, Laura Harding from Hilthalis actually spoke to this as being another responsibility of the architect or the professional to um, demystify or decode the complexity of the legal and planning framework in which we need to get things done in order to make it approachable and understandable for people so that then they can make an informed or more informed uh, decision or comment about whether they're in support of what's being proposed or whether they're against it. So it's very, it's multi... It's multifaceted, that's for sure. Do you think the language is blocking people out that if, uh, you know, proposals of that larger level, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, larger city urban design projects, that people are sort of, um, the door is closed because they simply cannot understand it and they don't feel that their voice will be heard? Absolutely. I mean, and all professions have this level of technical jargon and that's just another barrier for for people being involved. Um, to talk to, about Rob Stokes again, he, he sees there's two reasons for having the community involved in, in participating in the built environment. And the first one is to legitimise what the government is doing. Mm. But the second, and he says more importantly, is to make the outcome better. So if that's the reason for involving people, wouldn't we want to instil them with the best possible information that we can, rather than cloud it in this um, in this technical jargon. And I think I'm not saying the government's evil. Um, You know, they're definitely making moves towards um, making those things more understandable with graphics and in images. But it's just, there's so much information, it's very hard for for people to 
to get an understanding of what's happening. It's a very big shift. All professions are going through this. Mm. Um, the architecture's going through it. Governments go through it at various levels. That how you break down y- your doors and let people in and, and trust and collaborate uh, with citizens. Yeah. Because in the past, they've been ruled by organisations. Mm. So uh, do you see it as a cultural shift? Um, I, I'm optimistic for that as well. Ben, you've talked a lot about optimism uh, as this being uh, a way forward uh, or some way of uh, thinking about the future and hoping mm-hmm. for the best. Yes. Uh, what do you see optimism as? Where's it coming from in your head? I think optimism is about uh, a personal desire to be involved in making things better or a personal desire to see that things can be better. And it can't be just a blind optimism that the future is going to be better, but actually something more strategic and more tactical in that there are things we can improve on and let's go about, let's go about doing it. Mm. Um, and I, I definitely think the people I spoke to, you know, leaders of their field, uh, recognisable names in the Sydney architecture community, have this sense of optimism because they really are engaged in the complexity of the things we need to do and they see some path forward. And that, that's all completely different. Um, Adam Haddow spoke about his optimism in making the best in business he can. So making a really supportive, equitable workforce and creating a culture where people are able to um, excel and do their best. Mm. David Tickle spoke about the best thing architects can do is good design. And that's it. design's a continual thing that in itself, every iteration, there's some improvement. Every iteration, you're... It's an optimistic process, I guess. You know, you keep drawing, you keep thinking about the problem because you are optimistic and you're hopeful that the final outcome will be the best solution that you can come out, come to out of that process. So perhaps it's something that's intrinsic in the, the method of our working as well. Yeah, and I'm hearing a lot of it now and it seems to be part of what it is to be an architect now mm-hmm. um, and how you go forward, how we uh, look at uh, the balance of power between community and professions and so on. Optimism's a part of that. I'm thinking that the optimism might be a, a way of um, breaking down traditional power structures and um, strategically working one's way through as in the case with Adam Haddow, opportunities for men and women in the workforce, Mm -hmm. in the way that you're talking opportunities for community and government and so on to work differently. Is it an investigation of power? One way that architects can be powerful, and I think increasingly can be powerful, is around what we call advocacy. So picking up an issue or a topic that is particularly important to the individual or the profession, and then going out there and sharing that knowledge. So... We look back to community, community participation being about um, people coming to informed decision about issues. Advocacy, in a way, is providing information and insight to help people to form that informed decision, to come mm. to that some understanding of the complexities of the issues. So um, Ken Ma spoke to this by saying that conversations precede actions, and that's why advocacy is so important. So we need to talk about things and have a conversation before we go out and do them. And I think that's what's missing a lot of the time in these larger policies, like the light rail, for instance. Do you think that's uh, the the job of your generation coming through? You've recently graduated a whole generation or two away from from Ken Ma's experience. Mm -hmm. What do you see your uh, future as an architect being now in the 21st century? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's a role um, 
you know, particularly this is going to be influenced by the research I've been doing, but I think we have not only, not only an obligation to do good in the work that we do ourselves, to work towards a public interest there, but also an obligation to, you know, speak up about issues that are good or issues that are bad um, and change that is good or change that is bad and the opportunities for the future because I think that's something also that's... Um, you know, intrinsically part of the role of the architect in that we we talk about and we design things that are to come. So we're we're constantly jumping framework between the past, the present, and into the future. And the, the work that we do has a physicality about it, and the city has a physicality about it. So I think we're in a great position to to advocate and talk about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you look at our education is also introducing this as a theme for us to investigate in our studies as well. Um, I mean, in a way, this is public service. When you're an architect, you're working on ideas now that won't come to life for a few years. So you've got to think of the, that space. And yeah. it, it is re, reinventing public service. And it's, it's a very delicate thing, I think, advocacy. And it's not out there telling people what to do or telling people what the future should be. Um, but to quote Adam Haddow again, he said, the role of the advocate should not be telling people what to do or think, but rather sharing information to help individuals make their own decision. So for an example, we shouldn't be telling people you must live in an apartment, but we should be showing to them for their own benefit why that is a good idea. Yeah, and that's good for us all. Uh, Part of your scholarship sent you to New York. That's right. Yes. Um, And uh, the Highline is uh, a good example of a a project that uh, had community engagement driven by community. What, What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, my first time to New York. Um, so I think I was completely overwhelmed by the city itself. <laughs> the High Line was a fantastic uh, experience. Uh, I really enjoyed I stayed quite close to there, so I was able to visit it a couple of times. Um, and I bought a book from a little bookstore and started reading about the history of it and was learning things about it while I was there, which was really great. Um, and the difficulty that they went through in preserving it. Um, you know, t- two guys randomly met at a function and both thought they were going to be too busy to do anything, but it just got under their skin um, and it got under the, the community skin. And they met the right people and they had the right conversations and it, it just grew into this organisation called Friends of the Highline. And then you get buy-in from government, you get buy-in from Amanda Burden at the time who was the chief urban designer at New York City and a bunch of influential people thought it was a great idea and you know, has gifted this fantastic infrastructure to the city. Do you think that the idea of the High Line is transferable to Australia? Absolutely. I think we've got examples here where um, community or grassroots ideas have become really fantastic parts of our city. And I spoke to Sasha Coles from Aspect Studio about his involvement in Perima Park in the city of Sydney. And that idea started from a local resident, uh, Marcel Hoff, actually, who led this organisation, Friends of Piemont Park. And their idea was that this land should be gifted to the city and should become a public park that anybody can access. And um, Hoff was quite strategic in getting a seat on the council and bringing this issue into public awareness. And everyone could quickly realise that this was going to be a great thing for the city, and it happened. Mm, it's inspiring. So how can we do that, that, that? You know, you have to get a seat on the council and be organised in that sense. But I think some of the visions that you're talking about is that 
people, ordinary people, people who may not know how to do things like get on a council and yep. so on, uh, should have access to influencing their streets and their city. How can we bring it down a little bit, make it happen on a local level, but just maybe through serendipity? Even? Yeah. So this is this is something I haven't got to the bottom of yet, but it's it's some sort of different personality trait. Some people um, you know, relinquish their idea of making the city to the government, or some people really have a desire to act on it themselves. So I often talk about the story of getting my hair cut, and my barber has set up this lovely little shop he's wanted for years to have his own place. He set it up in the, a little corner in Redfern. But the grass and the trees out the front of his shop on the council-owned land just weren't right. They just weren't su- suiting the character of his shop. So he went about to going down to Bunnings one day, buying fresh grass, buying some trees, buying some garden gnomes, and making this little <laughs> pocket of public land his own. He doesn't even own the building. He's just renting. And I was really intrigued by what was it that, was inside him that A, had the desire to make the city better and then B, just took it upon himself to go out and do it. You know, that, I'm really intrigued and excited by those little things, just on a little corner in Redfern. Mm, in Sydney, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the grass died because he chose the wrong <laughs> species um, and a quick call to the council and they came out and replaced it. But that wasn't his first step. It was, his first step wasn't just to call somebody else, hey, council, council come down here and fix the nature strip. He took it upon himself to make it better. And um, the individuals like that, you know, they're such an important part of the city or part of our culture. So we need to listen to them when they have these ideas and, and run with them and support them. And I think, you know, architects, landscape architects, people who can visualise the future have a, a definite role to play in that, in that relationship. Ben, thank you for coming in. It's amazing. I'm incredibly optimistic now about the world. Thank <laughs> Good. you. I've done my job. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Jan Ryan with Ben Peake from Carter Williamson Architects, who received the Byron Hadley Travelling Scholarship in 2014. I love that quote that Ben gives us in his report from Sasha Coles of Aspect Studios, who said, We're going through a period of, I think, lethargy because we're so wealthy. Mm. Does he just mean Sydney? I think that's a very Sydney problem, right? It reminds me of Bruce Mao's quote, which is, what is it? Now that we can do anything, what shall we do? Like, on what basis do we make decisions? And on what basis is it the public good? Yeah. And when when is an architect practicing with the public's interest first and foremost mm. in mind, rather than the client's interest? Mm. And of course, from a board's perspective, you know, professionalism is defined as an overriding interest in the public interest and the public good. You've been listening to Architecture Insights and that was the last in our series uh, about the Barra Hadley Travelling Scholarships. If you would like to apply for a Barra Hadley Travelling Scholarship and our website, follow the links. Um, It's open for applications every June and July, Tim. Yeah, it closes 31st July every year. Thank you very much again. You've been listening to Architecture Insights brought to you by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board. I'm Di Snape.